0: Well, I hope your expectations are high today, and I hope your expectations are high because you are about to witness an excellent sermon. Not only are you about to witness an excellent sermon, you are about to see before your very eyes modeled perfect Bible interpretation. The technical word for that is hermeneutics. You're going to see and witness better hermeneutics than you would get if you paid good money for such a class in seminary. Hope your expectations are high. And not only that, I hope your expectations are high because you are going to see miraculous healing. Now some of you are thinking, did we get off on the wrong exit? Um, Is this Omaha Bible Church? Uh, he sounds like Pat Eventhroth, <laughs> but he's talking about a great sermon. <laughs> he's talking about perfect, her- perfect hermeneutics and miraculous healings. Um, yeah, you came to the right church and you got off on the right exit. Um, but I can say all of those things because we're going to be opening our Bibles to the third chapter of Acts today. And in the third chapter of Acts, we're going to see a great, excellent, extraordinary, astounding sermon. It's just not mine. And we are going to see the Apostle Peter perform, I think, perfect hermeneutics, perfect Bible interpretation. He's going to show us how we should read the Old Testament, the Christian way to do so. And not only that, we are going to see an account of miraculous healing. Acts chapter 3 is a great chapter. It'll almost preach itself. I think I'll try to do my best to help you see its greatness, uh, but in some, t- some ways I'll just be getting in the way. But before we dive into Acts 3, what I'd like to do is remind you that the book of Acts is a second volume in a two-volume set, and so that's why sometimes we say Luke-Acts, because Dr. Luke, a first-century medical doctor, writes the gospel according to Luke, and then he continues on with volume two, which is the book of Acts. Think actions, uh, what Christ continued to do through his spirit, through the apostles, in the life of the early church. And so keep those things in mind. I know I've mentioned them before, but some of you are just joining us. So we're looking at the second volume, the actions uh, of Christ through his spirit in the life of the early church. And as uh, we think about that, I might remind you of what Luke says At the beginning of his first volume, because it it shed some light on his his second volume. So Luke chapter 1 verse 1 says, In as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account to you or for you most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And something similar is said in Acts chapter 1. So Dr. Luke is going to pay attention to detail. He's writing initially to someone named Most Excellent Theophilus, some a person of dignity, a person of acclaim, a person of sophistication. And he writes to him so that he can have certainty about what happened. Theophilus already had been taught the gospel. We don't know if he's busy doubting or he just wants to have his faith strengthened or his state, but it's to give him greater certainty. And so I like to keep that in mind when we're studying Luke-Acts, and we're studying Luke-Acts right uh, right now. It's designed to give you greater certainty in light of what really happened. Eyewitness accounts. I like to put it this way. Uh, Further reminders about why you're not crazy if you're a Christian. Why it's actually reasonable to trust in Christ as your Savior. And so with those things in mind, let's do a deep dive, if you will. Acts chapter 3. We're looking for historical certainty regarding the work of God in Christ and through his spirit in his church. Acts chapter 1, or excuse me, Acts chapter 3 verse 1. Now Peter and John, apostles, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And that sounds like something we heard earlier in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together. So here in 3.1, it's 3 p.m., and they're doing what they were doing on a daily basis. They're Jews, and what do these Jews do when they're in Jerusalem? They go to the temple, and they're going to the temple yet again. So we saw it in chapter 2. We're seeing it chapter 3. They're going there at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and I want to remind you what I mentioned last week. Not all of you are here. I'll, re- I'll say it again. Remember, they're going to the temple, but they won't keep going to the temple. Remember that T word. The T word. The T word is transition. So much of what happens in the book of Acts is transition time. So we're, we're closing out the old covenant and now new covenant. And during this time, it's a time of transition. Now, the temple's going to be destroyed in 70 A.D., Jesus said it was going to happen. It's a form of judgment from God, and it's going to happen. He mentioned that in Luke, or excuse me, Matthew chapter twenty four, twenty five. So no matter what, if they if they don't catch on on their own, he's going to put an end to it. Uh, but we can think in other terms. There there doesn't need to be the temple anymore. There doesn't need to be the temple anymore because we don't need sacrifices anymore. Hebrews says they've been made obsolete. There's fulfillment in Christ. Um, not only that, we, we had even the flaming, uh, the flames on all the individuals symbolizing the presence of God. Well, yeah, that that's, that's unique presence of God was the temple before. And now we're referred to as the temple, the unique presence of God. And so we're going to see transition. We're going to see those things closing out. Sometimes I don't want you to take my word for things. And so here's a, a helpful insight from a helpful commentator named Guy Prentice Waters. To be sure, the Old Testament ceremonial law, including the sacrifices, had been fulfilled by the work of Christ and therefore abrogated, no longer necessary, at Jesus' resurrection. Another helpful commentator, Dennis Johnson, Jesus' death had rendered the temple and sacrifices obsolete. In the bright light of the cross, these shadows had no further purpose. In fact, the flames resting, this is where I got the idea, hopefully it's in the text too, in fact, the flames resting on Jesus' followers mark them as God's new temple. So why are they still going to the temple? Well, it's a transition time. But that transition, t- they don't need to go anymore, and they're not going to be able to go pretty soon. But, one final comment, and then we'll go faster. In God's providence, I think it's good that there's this transition time. Why? Because the Jews are still going, and now the Jews who've become Christians are still going, and guess what Peter gets to do in chapter 3? Go to all of those Jews who are still going to the temple and preach the gospel to them so that they might come to believe that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, and that definitely is what we see happen here in an extraordinary, amazing kind of way. So I, I like it that there's this transition. There's something in me that thinks, why is this transition happening? This seems silly. Why would they be going to the temple? Well, they're not going to keep going for very long, but in the short term, great evangelistic opportunities so that they can see that they don't need the temple anymore either. Okay, we better move on. Verse 2. And a man, lame from birth, and I'm going to emphasize that on purpose, lame from birth he's a man now so this has been for a long time was being carried whom they laid daily this is a regular practice at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms or donations of those entering the temple So, lame from birth, this happens daily, this is a regular thing, he's recognizable, he's well known, I think this goes to legitimacy. It supports the legitimacy kind of thing that Luke is trying to emphasize. This isn't some guy who came from Fakerville, some some town that nobody knows about, and for all we know, he just happened to hurt his lower back while lifting something, and and he's going to get miraculously healed. Not that that couldn't happen, not that that couldn't help a person, but this is somebody who is now a man, and he's been lame, how, how long did it say? From birth. That, that's it, it goes to support the argument of what is going to happen miraculously is, is actually a real mi- miracle, not a fake one. Verse 3 says, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms donations and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said look at us now why why would they need to do that well this guy's been doing this for a long time he's on autopilot right he, he's been at the same place, presumably for a long time, and he's on autopilot. He doesn't even, even need to look up. He can just say, donation, 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 donation. This guy wakes up in the middle of the night saying, donation, donation, donation. He doesn't even have to think about it. It's just, it's just built in the kind of mechanism of things. And people give him money. And they probably give him money without even thinking about it. It's the guy that we see there all the time. He's been there for a long time. When we lived in Los Angeles, we would see the same people on the same corner all the time. And it would be strange if they weren't on their corners. I don't think this is that. But you get used to certain people being at certain places. Donation, 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 donation. They can do all kinds of other things practically at the same time. Donation. Peter says, look at us. Give us your special attention. Look at us. No more monotony, no more mindlessly asking. Peter calls for his attention to waken him from his mental stupor. Verse 5 says, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, he, 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 something different's going to happen. He's going he's to receive something, but it's something special, and Peter wants him to know that it's something special. In the name of Jesus, what does it say? Jesus Christ of Nazareth which is just a great title, and I'll never tire of just stressing the basics of the title. In the name of Jesus, okay, the, the one who saves, that makes a lot of sense. Christ, the one who is the Messiah, deliverer, Savior, that makes a lot of sense. But it's no, in particular, we're talking about someone here in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Oh, that Jesus, that Jesus Christ, the the one who's the humble one from the humble place, the unique one who has been raised from the dead one. Oh, that one in His name, rise up and walk, Peter says. Rise up and walk. Did you notice the word play? Rise up. You could translate it, be resurrected. It's a resurrection statement. In the name of the one who was bodily raised from the dead, and we're his apostles, you know what? We call you to be resurrected. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Because that would, that would picture the power that Christ has. Oh, sure, in this sense, it's going to be temporary. Uh, it's not ultimate resurrection that we receive, that all believers receive, that will last forever. But nevertheless, it's, it's a picture of the power to save. It's an illustration for people to be able to see the resurrected one. We're doing this in his name, and we say, be resurrected. Be, be resurrected. Yes, it's a foretaste resurrection. It's not the ultimate resurrection. But nonetheless, it is a resurrection. In his name, based upon his authority, sometimes the name is personal presence, like in the Old Testament in Exodus 23. I also love it that by saying, be raised in the name of Jesus, be raised in the name of the one who's not dead. There's no power in the name of a dead Jesus who stayed dead. No, you know you know how he, this guy can be resurrected? By someone who has the power over death and the effects of sin. Be raised in the name of the raised one, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Then verse seven says, and he, Peter, took him by the right hand and raised him up and immediately, that's another key word, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Note the connection. Verse 7, immediately. Verse 2, lame from birth. He's lame from birth and now immediately. So so no one wrote a script for physical therapy, right? And we got to rebuild. None, there's none of that because it's meant to be unmistakable as a miracle. This can't happen. And it happens. And Luke wants to make sure we understand it's immediately. It's, it's, this is no shenanigans, um, televangelist trying to sucker people for their money. This isn't vitamin sales. This isn't kind of some weird supplement thing. I like vitamins, don't get me wrong. I like physical therapy too. <laughs> but here this is a miracle from god is the point you you can you can't explain this other than in the name of the resurrected one be resurrected and if peter has a special power has a special authority it's going to support peter and the others as apostles there's some there's some connection between oh jesus did this kind of stuff and we at least for a time it won't last are doing similar kinds of things. So listen to what we have to say to you about Jesus. Later on in verse 16, Luke is going to describe this as perfect health. Dr. Luke. Oh, that's interesting. Coincidence? <laughs> no. That's his appraisal. Okay. Okay. I hope you're enjoying this. I certainly am. Uh, Verse 8, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all, I want to underscore that because I think Luke does it on purpose. Verse 9, And all the people saw him. So again, this was not, as I like to say, this isn't something that happened in some dark back alley. Or in someone's imagination, or I know, I know a person who knows a person who knows a person who once was in the deepest, darkest jungles of such and such a place and they saw a miracle. Don't place your faith in that kind of testimony. This testimony is everybody saw. This is a public event. Just like the resurrection is a public event, this, verse 9, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. And then, underscore this too in verse 10, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. Remember verse 2, daily he asked for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And rightfully so. And maybe they should be even more wondering and more amazing than they are because as Peter is going to show them, this is, this is fulfillment of prophecy. This is messianic kind of stuff. This is the kind of stuff Isaiah talked about when Messiah would come. This kind of stuff would happen. Deliverance. Isaiah 35 verse four. He will come and save you. Verse six. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Oh, it's that kind of stuff that we were promised a long time ago that maybe we'd forgotten about. Jesus in Luke chapter 7 said, these very things are fulfilled in him and by him because he's the Messiah. Luke 7, 22. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. This is Jesus speaking. The blind receive their sight. Here we go. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus, when he was on earth, said, "It's me. I am the one who fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. I'm the one humanity humanity has been waiting for. The deliverer, the Messiah, the Savior, the protector, the provider, the restorer of what is good." Now back to our main text, verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, people, utterly astounded, think because this isn't the norm. This wasn't normal before. This isn't normal then. It's certainly not going to be normal after. They're utterly astounded. Ran together to them in the portico, this porch feature called Solomon's. So this, this is so credible that they have to go figure it out. They've got to run over there. What? The, the implied question is, who in the world are you guys? And, 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 and how in the world did you do that? They're all astounded. Whatever's happened here, we need to figure out. What just happened? Well, I can give you the wrong answer. What just happened is a new health care plan for all Christians. It's sold that way, but it never, ever, ever ends up working that way. What's going on? It's not that. What's going on is there's a preview of resurrection power. But what's going on in addition to that is this is a sign that God wants you to listen to these unique individuals named the Apostles of Jesus Christ. It's authenticating them. It's authenticating their message. It's showing that they're not fake. It's showing that they're legitimate. It's showing that they're real. And so Peter can say, now that I have your attention, Let me heal all of you because that's your greatest problem. Nope. Now that I have all of your attention, let me tell you about the resurrected one that you must trust in so that you will have eternal life, eternal resurrection, lasting, irrevocable, irreversible. This is is fun to watch, fun to, to, to see it all happening and unfolding Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Here they all, they're they're all there, and he's going to respond to them. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? I kind of like to chuckle and think, because you just did a wonder. (laughs) Right? It's it's, it's rhetorical. They should be wondering at signs and wonders because they're wonderful. But but Peter, Peter wants them to think. Peter wants them to really think about this. So so why do you wonder at this? Or, or why do you stare at us? Well, pretty good reason. But again, he wants them to think about this. As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. I like that, what he's doing. Peter is in effect saying, Look at us. Do, 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 do I look powerful? Do do I look like some sort of you know human god of paganism? Um, Do I do I do I look like some sort of very godly man with holy garb and uh, all of the trappings and enshrinements of someone who would talk about God? Right? Do do I look like a pious person? I look like a fisherman because I am a fisherman, right? I, I don't I don't match. I I don't fit the bill. I'm not the guy you would think would be doing extraordinary things. I'm Peter, the fisherman from Galilee. And I suppose he could elaborate, who denied Jesus, by the way. So, why are you you thinking that, that we're the impressive ones? But then... He enlightens them. Then he enlightens them with what's so special and what's so important. In verse 13, the God of Abraham. So let's talk about God here, not me. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. And I'm going to stop there just for a moment and ask you, why talk like that? Well, talk like that if you're Peter, because that sounds like Old Testament talk. Not only that, that sounds like Exodus talk. Oh, yeah. And in the book of Exodus, where God is going to deliver his people from bondage, where God is going to redeem his people from oppression, physical and spiritual, but from what we see largely physical, well... Peter's connecting those dots you're going to be delivered from oppression, not largely physical, largely spiritual. Jesus is the great deliverer. Jesus is the one who brings redemption. Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob but he goes on to say in Exodus 3 that he delivers them from affliction. I know their sufferings. Verse 8 I have come down, God says, to deliver them. Think in terms of that synonym for salvation. I've come to deliver them. Oh, Peter wants his Jewish audience when he says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers. Oh, that famous, famous declaration when our people were delivered from oppression. Yeah, and Jesus is the deliverer, the ultimate deliverer from ultimate oppression. No doubt he wants them to think in those terms. But I think there's also another reason why he would start his message with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Another reason is because Jesus drew upon that very statement to prove the doctrine of the, anybody remember? Resurrection. When Jesus engaged people, because some Jews didn't believe in the resurrection, when Jesus engaged people who didn't believe in the resurrection, he quotes the same text. He says this. This is Luke chapter 20, verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That's Jesus. If he's the God of all of those people, he's not the God of the dead. There is hope of resurrection if he's still their God is Jesus argument. So I realize I'm, I'm, I'm slowing the sermon down way too much. Peter's that is. But it's a great way to launch his sermon. We're talking about the God of resurrection when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. It's not some weird thing. He's always been a God of resurrection. He's always been the God of the living. Ultimately, it has to be done through his son. And we're here to tell you about him. We're here to tell you about ultimate deliverance. Now, back to Acts 3.13, he then says, if you want to go ahead and look there, the God of resurrection, the God of the living, the God who, who they profess to believe in, he says, glorified, this is partially through 13, glorified his servant Jesus. So our God who delivers, who is a resurrection God, I want you to know, He exalted His servant Jesus. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. You Jews, I'm here to tell you about Jesus, but it, He doesn't come out of left field. He doesn't come out as, as some kind of plan B. We're making this kind of stuff up. It's not fulfilling. It's actually fulfilling. And you need to know that God glorified His servant, Jesus. He exalted His servant, Jesus. Isaiah 52, fulfillment of that, because Isaiah 52, 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, like glorified. He glorified His servant, Jesus. So why did this man get raised temporarily? So that we can tell you about the God of resurrection. And he raises through his son, Jesus. Jesus, who is his servant, who he glorified. Jesus of Nazareth, nonetheless. Maybe one more thing, and then we'll finish out verse 13. But when he says to the Jews, he glorified his servant, Jesus. I wouldn't die for this, but I think we're probably on to something, especially in light of Isaiah text. If he's there to tell them about Jesus, I want you to know that Jesus has been glorified. Jesus is the glorified servant who you should be impressed with. Read between the lines, because you guys are not God's glorified servant. Think with me about this. I realize maybe we're in the deep end of the pool. I'm asking you to think, connect dots between Old Testament and New Testament. The servant theme is big. The, th- the servant theme is important. And in the book of Isaiah, I heard we're maybe going to have an Isaiah class here some, someday. I'm not sure. might be fake news. Um, it might be apocryphal. Uh, but I heard Pastor Mike Holloway say we eventually are going to have, have an Isaiah class again. But I, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, we once upon a time had an Isaiah class. And uh but let me give you a little insight into Isaiah. The servant and I'm a broken record on this, but I'm gonna keep doing it. In Isaiah, you start reading about the servant, and the servant is Israel. Clear as can be. And as you move along, you see that Isaiah himself talks in terms of personification. The servant is a person. And by the time you get into the 40s, clearly the person is the Messiah. And clearly by the time you get into the 50s, we talk about the suffering servant, sometimes without even thinking about it. That's got a whole background. Israel is the servant. They're not a very good servant. They're an unfaithful servant, servant nonetheless. And there is the champion servant who's loyal and faithful. And he is the suffering servant. So when Peter says what he says here, again, I wouldn't die for this, but knowing what I do know about Isaiah, when he says he glorified his servant, not you guys. Jesus is the faithful servant is how how I'm reading that. See, they, they thought they were the end game. We're God's servant. We're so faithful. We're so loyal. You know what? They didn't put it in these terms. We are going to live in the land of types and shadows forever because it's about us. It was never meant to be about them. It was always meant to be types and shadows in anticipation of substance. So Israel's not glorified. Jesus, the servant is glorified, exalted because it was always meant to be in anticipation him grand and glorious servant theme i think on fire here whether they realized it or not he glorified his servant not you but jesus jesus of nazareth so i think things are getting more and more spicy they're 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 heating up because now he puts a finer point on it in verse 13 yes we'll move on whom you you're not the servant whom you, in contrast with God, delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You of all people who say you're waiting for the Messiah, call for him to be crucified, even when Pilate three times in Luke's gospel account says he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. Not only that, Herod says he is. And you say he's guilty. Talk about the sinfulness of sin and the sinfulness of the human heart where they can see the tangible evidences, the kind Luke is laying down, and come to all the wrong conclusions. It's a sad state regarding my heart and your heart apart from, or their hearts apart from God's sovereign intervention. Well, there, we're about to get into, I almost said we're about ready to get into some really good stuff. It doesn't get any better, but it keeps getting, how do I say that? It's, it's gonna stay good. Alright. Four, 14 and 15 are, are rich. How about that? That, that's, that's how the transcript will read. Uh, continue in this rich goodness. Verse 14, but you! Yes, you! Isn't it funny how people always say, make it, make your sermon apply to my life, Pastor. Usually we don't want the sermon to apply to our life. <laughs> He's making it very applicable to their life, okay? Here, here's some, here's some take-home application for you. But you, kind of a yes you, denied the holy and righteous one. The unique one of all unique ones, holy, right, the righteous one. The perfect upholder of God's standards, of His law. The righteous one. The one who is the fulfiller of the law and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. And you, you killed the author of life. I love that title for Jesus, the author of life. From what I've studied, that's a great translation but but we need to inject it a little bit with a little bit more meaning. He's the author of life, but it's actually a word that carries the idea of a trailblazer. One who goes first. That's why I think some older translations translate it captain. Like I'm pretty sure the King James in Hebrews chapter 2 talks about the captain of our salvation. Now, if, it, if we translated it captain, we'd probably need to inject that with a little bit of help to get the full roundedness of the idea. But the idea is he is the author of it. He's the creator of it. But not only that, he, he's the captain of it. And the, the idea is he leads others to safety, right? Like a captain would on a ship. He's a fellow human being, but if he's the captain, he's the leader, and it's... Through his leadership, that they get to the safe shore or whatever? Something like that. You get the idea. I like the title because we don't use it very often. And so it kind of rings strange in my ears when I read Hebrews chapter 2 or this in King James fashion. You killed the captain of life. Jesus is the captain of our salvation because he becomes one of us. He becomes a human being and represents us and he leads his people to safety because of what he does. And Peter says, you killed him. To kill the author of life. Notice the irony. Notice how, how convoluted, backward, perverse, and strange it is to kill life, to kill the author of life. How awful. Whom God, notice the contrast again, raised from the dead. We learned in chapter 2 he couldn't stay dead because according to our chapter, he's the righteous one. To this we are witnesses. You all witnessed this guy you've known for years be raised. And just as you've witnessed him be raised before your very eyes, we apostles witnessed, I witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. That's a, that's a strong kind of way to argue. Credible, historic, not folklore, not mythology, not crazy. Thirty, uh, excuse me. Verse sixteen says, "And his name, by faith in his name, made this man strong, whom you see, or has made this man strong, whom you see and know." Maybe we'll stop there just for a moment. By faith in his name. I, I I urge you not think, to think it's some kind of weird, as long as you say this name, there's some kind of weird mystical thing going on. Think in terms of Jesus is the one and only one who perfectly lived up to his namesake, right? Jesus, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It means God saves. Jesus is the perfect savior. Jesus perfectly lived up to his namesake. The namesake Things are kind of funny sometimes, aren't they? Have you ever looked up somebody's name and it said, prone to failure, deception, lies, untrustworthy? I've never seen one. I think it's all a racket. To sell more little license plates at the trinket shop or something. Um, <sighs> sorry if I've offended you. Um, my name means valor and strength. Awesome. Awesome. Great, um, not the way Jesus' name means Savior, and He actually lived up to His namesake. Trust in His name. It's another way of saying, think about His name and trust in His person. Because he really is trustworthy. It's a great way to say it to kind of catch you off guard. And his name, by faith in his name, by faith in his person, because he lives up to his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Luke loves to emphasize that. You see him and you know him. And the faith that is... Oh, notice that sounds a little odd. Through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. not only is the faith in Jesus, it's through Jesus. So put, st- stick that away in your little mental notebook or real notebook. Where does, where does, where does the power to believe come from? Where, where does the power to even have faith come from if we're dead in trespasses and sins? That's well, grace upon grace. It's not the only time we're going to see this in the book of Acts. I like to say Acts is a, a, lot, about, a lot about transition this is one part of Acts that's not about transition. <laughs> the one and only way anybody ever comes to have faith is to have it come through Jesus so that it can be in Jesus. It's only ever by sovereign grace that any of us ever come to believe in Jesus. And Peter won't stop stressing this. You know, he... he It's almost... I don't want to say he sneaks it in because I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but he he... He, it's, it's, it's threaded throughout and we're going to see it from beginning to end. Acknowledgement of God's sovereign purposes, His sovereign grace. Source is God. First Peter, Peter talks about this later in his epistle, first Peter chapter one, verse 21. Through Him are believers in God. Then he goes on to talk about how you need to be a believer in God, but it's through Him we are believers in God. Okay, we better keep moving. Verse 17, there's a shift in tone. He goes from the indicting, hardcore gloves off, you, 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 and now it's going to become far more compassionate. The tone is definitely shifting. Verse 17, and now, brothers. Notice it's not high horse, and now brothers. I'm I'm like you, I'm, I'm... Sympathetic, empathetic, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. He doesn't say you're innocent. You did no wrong, but he does say you're stupid. (laughs) He does say you, you didn't know what you were doing. You did not understand the purposes of God in Messiah. So he's not letting him off the hook, but he's saying, you know what, I understand that, that, that you acted in ignorance. Verse 18 says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So keep that in mind with what he says earlier, 18 and 17. I know you had terrible hermeneutics. I know you had bad Bible interpretation. I know you memorized the Bible, but you didn't understand how the Old Testament works. You acted in ignorance. And so then he moves on. The very next verse is, let me tell you about the Bible. What do you mean, tell us about the Bible? These are verses they would know. But he says, notice notice what he does in 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets... This is universal testimony, prophetic anticipation that Christ, His Christ, the Messiah, would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Hmm. I I, I just thought over and over and over again about that verse. Even things like all the prophets, I mean, okay, so there are there are prophecies about Messiah. But he universalizes it. Not just specific prophecies that we can find that are important. But it's all the prophets. So no doubt he has in mind more than just specific prophecies which are important. But the whole anticipation is looking for someone greater, fulfilled in Christ. Types. Shadows. Offices. Prophetic looking forward to the one who would fulfill. And he says he thus fulfilled. Jesus is the one. He did it. Apparently Peter was taking really good notes on the road to Emmaus. <laughs> because he sounds a lot like Jesus in Luke 24 connecting the old testament to anticipating jesus okay now for a call to action okay what should we do that's what they ask in chapter two they're not asking here but peter's telling them anyway verse 19 repent therefore you got the you got christ wrong you got the bible wrong you got the bible wrong as it relates to christ repent therefore and turn back Turn back to the Christ that you wanted crucified and you fled away from. You need to go back to that very Christ that you called to have crucified and embrace him by faith. you got to trust in him. If you want to be raised from the dead, if you want a good future and not condemnation, you need to repent. You need to acknowledge that you were wrong about the Bible, wrong about Christ, and turn right back to that very same one. It's the call to action. Go to the one that in whom salvation is found. And here's why. Verse 19. Don't miss this. This is maybe the best part. At least for me. That your sins, your violations against God's commandments may be blotted out. That's remarkable. If you go back to Christ, embracing by faith is the idea. Your sins will be blotted out. Can't be seen anymore. Is the idea. Think about who he's talking to. He was in the you, you, you. God did this, but you. And now it's, you can have your sins blotted out. This is why we call it good news. The good news that if you trust in Christ your sins can't be seen anymore is astounding it's amazing it's why I'm a Christian because there's hope for me and you might say how can this actually be I know enough about the Bible to know that God is a just judge he's not corrupt and so sin will be dealt with justly with death that's as biblical as you get But there's a substitute whose name is Jesus, the righteous one who made atonement so that our sins can be blotted out. Colossians puts it this way, 2.14, by canceling the record of debt, spiritual debt, sin debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. figurative language, obviously. There was no record of debt literally nailed to the cross. Jesus is nailed to the cross as the sin bearer. But what a good image it is. The debt that I owe, God will judge me for it and He should if He's a fair and just judge. But there's a way of escape. I can have my sins blotted out. Nailed to the cross. It's great. It's great. And, and we might argue from the, from the greater to the lesser. The worser to the not as worse. Or something silly like that. Think about it. If these individuals who said crucify him. Your sins can be blotted out. Well no one in this room at least was literally there and asked for that to happen. If they could be forgiven, argument from the greater to the lesser, you can be forgiven. For sure. This is good news. This is great news. And not only can you have your sins blotted out, he tells them, and I would echo to you, not only, but you can look to the future from a positive perspective. Verse 20 says, that times of refreshing... He's using figurative language from, from living in an arid culture where, where you're just waiting for the rain to come so you can, you can refill your cisterns. And we can we can survive the arid heat and, and have sustenance. And he uses that kind of verbiage, that times of refreshing, oh, like when it rains, when we can have fresh water again and, and be restored. Well, he's using it in a religious or a spiritual sense, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you trust in christ it will be a time of refreshing that comes to you it is fresh and enlivening and life-giving 20 says and that he may send the christ appointed for you jesus whom heaven must receive ascension in view i think until the time for restoring all things about which god spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago so if you, you trust in Christ, you're going to have your sins blotted out. But not only that, you can, you can be refreshed and you can look forward to the future, not condemnation, but hope, blessing, goodness. You're not afraid of his return. You long for his return. Peter will later describe this with synonyms in second Peter chapter three, We who believe in Jesus are not fearing, cowering the return of Christ. We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. New, new, free, good, restored. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And because we have Christ's righteousness, we can be there. Because our sins are blotted out, we can be there. Okay, we need to wrap up. The wrap up is going to be Peter calls witnesses. So I'm going to call witness over here. A witness here, it's Moses. I'm going to call the prophets over here. And listen to the supporting arguments from the Old Testament. Verse 22 says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses said that? Yep, Deuteronomy 18 will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. Moses even says, listen to that greater Moses. Listen to the ultimate Moses who leads the people into the ultimate promised land, right? Listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the, from the people. Listen to him. I'm going to use, Peter says, Moses to support my point. He himself was waiting for a greater leader. He told you people, the people of Israel, to wait for a greater leader. Listen to him. And then I can't help but think of Peter when he had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, the same Peter who's preaching this sermon had seen Jesus transfigured with the Old Testament figures there with him and there it says the voice came uh, a voice came out of the cloud saying this is Luke 9:35 this is my son my chosen one listen to him peter understands peter gets it peter calls on moses listen to what we're preaching to you about jesus and you know what my friend moses over here would agree this is an anti old testament This is legit Old Testament. Okay, then he calls on other witnesses over here. The prophets, verse 24. And all the prophets who have spoken. I like that kind of redundancy because prophets by definition speak. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. These days. They talked about these days. All the prophets talked about these days. 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Oh Abrahamic covenant chapter 12 of Genesis and remember you Jews Peter's preaching to it wasn't just for you it was all the families of the earth. So even back in the Abrahamic covenant when it was given it was going going to include Jew and Gentile not only that. Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. He's inviting them to read it a little closer. Sometimes it's offsprings. But sometimes, on purpose, it's offspring. The offspring brings fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. And so, Paul says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, comma, who is Christ. So Peter says, you know what, and you should also listen to the Abrahamic covenant as it was given. Because as it was given, fulfillment would not come through the multitude of Jews, 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 Jews. Fulfillment would come of the Abrahamic covenant, oh, through a Jew. Through offspring. So do you want the Abrahamic blessings? Do you want to enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant? What you need to do is turn to the offspring who fulfills it and in him you too will receive all of the blessings. I mean this is dot connecting on hermeneutical fire. <laughs> to use big words. I mean that, 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 it's amazing. It's not a sleight of hand. He's taking them back to what the texts actually say and saying, you know what? You got it wrong. It's Jesus, not you. Where all hope is found. The hope is not found in you. The hope is not found in your heritage. The hope is found in the fulfillment of it all who is, to borrow from Paul, Christ. Verse 26 says, God, having raised up his servant, servant theme, sent him to you first, yes, to you Jews first, to bless you. And then notice how he ends it. Really fascinating, worth noticing. By turning every one of you from your wickedness. So the way to escape condemnation is not through oh self-realization and a lot of um, a lot of work that I've done, a lot of figuring that I've done. No, by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The blessings that come from God come by God turning them from their wickedness. So it's rather fascinating. I already brought it up once. This sovereign grace of God reality that permeates has come up again. Remember, he said to them, repent, it's a command, and turn back. They are morally obligated to do that. We're all morally obligated to do that. But when we keep looking, we realize it's not because we were such strong people or we were so much better than other people who didn't turn back. In actuality, and it's unsettling sometimes to consider God's sovereign work by turning every one of you from your wickedness. It ultimately has to be the Lord's work in our life to do this. Next week, Acts chapter 4, be sure to get off on the right exit. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the fact that you are a great God, the God of the living, the God of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And for the fact that he promises that all who trust in him, though they die, they will live. And we are grateful to have such a promise. May he be our savior as we would trust in him for the blotting out of our sins, for righteousness, for reconciliation, ultimately for eternal life and the new heavens and the new earth. Encourage us to leave with hearts filled with gratitude and motivation to live for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.